All right, find Ezekiel in your Bible. Book of Ezekiel. About 500 years ago, a guy named Sir Thomas More wrote a book, and the book was called Utopia. And when Sir Thomas More wrote this book, he was living in Great Britain, and the king of Great Britain was Henry VIII, who was not a really nice guy, and dissent and complaining or criticism of the government or King Henry or pretty much anything was not allowed. And so Sir Thomas More sat down and he said, I don't like the way things are going, but if I just come out and say I don't like the way things are going, I'll lose my head. So that's probably not the best idea. So the plan he came up with to voice his concerns is he wrote this book called Utopia. And it just happened to be about an island kingdom, just coincidentally. And remember, he lived in Great Britain. So he writes Utopia. It's about an island kingdom. You can see there on the cover. And uh, Utopia... Uh, means one of two things. It can mean, linguistically, good place, good place, or it can mean no place. And the book is satire, and the title of the book really says it all. He named it Utopia for a reason. That was not just pulled out of a hat. What he's saying is there is no good place. Everything in this kingdom is really, really terrible. There's nothing good about it. And he wrote this book, and he got away with his descent, and he got to keep his head. And the big point in all of it that he's writing is, the good place is no place. He was just so discouraged with the place he lived and how it was going that he said, everything is rotten, and he just sort of almost didn't have a lot of hope for a good place. And so in Ezekiel, especially when we wrap up, uh, the end of what we're going to talk about tonight, we'll see that Ezekiel tells us about the good place. And he tells us some really neat places or some really neat things about the good place. And uh, it does exist. You don't have to be pessimistic and, uh, and cynical like Sir Thomas More saying that there is no good place. And so Ezekiel is going to describe that to us. Ezekiel is the fourth of five books in the section of books called the Major Prophets. So there's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Uh, Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. We've talked about those the last couple of weeks. Um, Ezekiel, in some ways, is a lot like Isaiah and Jeremiah in that it's sort of just a long book. If you just are reading through the Bible and you get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it takes you a long time to get through those books. Uh, there's a lot of material there. But Ezekiel is also sort of like Daniel and that he has some apocalyptic writing. And we're going to talk about sort of what that means a little bit tonight. So he's a major prophet. Here's where he falls in the history of Israel, just so you know the storyline. We've talked about this a lot, so I hope this is starting to just be burned into your brain. Um, the conquest, Joshua. The period of the judges, that's the book of Judges and Ruth. The monarchy, that's Saul, then David, then Solomon. Division of the kingdom, Solomon's kids, Rehoboam and Jeroboam split it. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Rebellion, both Israel and Judah over time just sort of fall away from the Lord and worship other gods. Just like God said he was going to do, he sends them out of the promised land into exile. Assyria comes 
in 722 and hauls out the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Babylon comes to Jerusalem in Judah, where Ezekiel was, and hauls these guys out in about 586. So they both go into exile. After 70 years, God brings them back. That's Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, some of those guys, and they come back. And then you're on the doorstep of Jesus. When you get to that point in the story, you just wait a few hundred silent years where not much happens, and then Jesus is born. So that's the, the storyline of, Old, Test, of uh, Old Testament Israel. Just a disclaimer, we're going to go through a lot of stuff in Ezekiel. And I didn't put half of it on your outline. And maybe I should have made it a whole page outline tonight. I'll, I just have this format in my computer. Um, but there's going to be a lot of stuff on the screens that's not on your outline. So if you start thinking I missed something or I skipped something or I left something off, I know I did. And if you're just so type A that you have to have it all, then you can give me your email when we're done and I'll email it to you. Because you may not have time to write it all down. Um, there's just a lot in Ezekiel. It's hard to to cut some of these things out if you really want to understand the message of the book. So let's start off talking about Ezekiel the man, okay? He was taken into exile in 597. Now, if you're paying attention, you say, wait a minute, I thought you said that Jerusalem went into exile, Judah went into exile 586. You remember B.C. dates work backwards, right? The further back you go, the bigger the number gets. And so 597 is before the actual exile, and so Babylon comes and they're besieging the city and some of the people are hauled out of there, but the city doesn't actually fall till about 586. So Ezekiel gets taken before the city actually really crumbles all the way uh, during the reign of Jehoiakim. You can read about that in 2 Kings 24. He ends up near the river Kiber, about 50 miles southeast from Babylon. I know that some of you know exactly where that's at, but for those of us who don't know exactly where that's at, Here's a general idea, okay? The red circle on the left is Jerusalem, right in the middle of that. Mediterranean Sea is right there. Egypt's on the bottom left. What we know of as Saudi Arabia is the big gray blob sort of in the middle bottom. And uh, yellow on this map is the kingdom of Babylon or the Chaldeans. And so when they marched on Jerusalem and took these guys exile, they marched back up sort of through their kingdom then back down to the right, and in that right, uh, red circle on the right is Babylon, and Ezekiel ends up somewhere in that red circle. You can, you can read all the debates among biblical scholars about exactly where the river Kibar is and all that, but he's in that area, okay? He was a priest, kind of interesting. Not all of the prophets were priests. In fact, most of the prophets in the Old Testament were not priests, but some of them were, and Ezekiel was one of them. He was a priest called to be a prophet when he was 30 years old. You can read about that chapter 1. Uh, living in exile when the temple in Jerusalem fell in 586. Okay, so he goes in about 597, and a few years later the temple falls and is destroyed to the ground. Uh, so you can imagine, put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes. You get hauled away from your home, you get taken into exile, up on that map, you go way over to the east, but then you're in enemy territory, and the enemy back home is still blowing your city up, and you're there for a few years, and then you hear it just gets worse and worse and worse, and then eventually, the priest who worked where? In the temple, here's message, they, they have now conquered the whole city, the walls have been burned, the temple has been flattened, the palace has been destroyed, 
all of it is, has been raised to the ground. Um, last thing about Ezekiel is that he was recognized by the Jews in exile as a prophet. You can read about that in chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago for Jeremiah, you remember that everybody thought Jeremiah was a traitor. They thought he had betrayed his people. They did not think he was speaking for God. And that was one of the most difficult parts of his ministry. Every time he said something, nobody recognized him as a prophet. Ezekiel at least didn't have that problem. People maybe didn't listen all the time or do exactly what he wanted them to do, but they did recognize that he was a prophet of God. Um, so that's a little bit about Ezekiel the man. Now, this is not on your outline. Let me tell you about his resume just a little bit. So we have this youth pastor search team, and we've been looking at resumes. If you have a pastor search team, you look at resumes. And guys put on their ministry resume some of the things they've done, right? I, was, I went on this mission trip, or uh, I, I taught a class here, or I've pastored this church, or I've been involved in this sort of citywide crusade. Here's a few of the things that Ezekiel has on his resume. One is apocalyptic visions. Um, the glory of God in chapter 1, the valley of dry bones in chapter 37. And I'll just be honest with you. When you read these visions and what he's saying, if you were looking at a resume and he put this on his resume and he was telling you about it, you'd say, you're nuts. You are crazy. There is no way we are hiring you to work at our church. You have lost your mind. So he had these visions. Um, he, he performed visionary actions um, you can read about that in chapter 3, verse 1. He, he literally ate his sermon. He had it written out on a piece of paper, and he ate it. God told him to eat it. So there you go. I might try that one Sunday morning. Stand up and eat it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Dumbness. And by dumbness, I don't mean he was stupid. I mean he couldn't talk. So how's that for a pastor? Sometimes he shows up on Sunday and he just scribbles out on a note, sorry, can't talk today. I, God took my voice away. To use the phrase from Ezekiel, he's making my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. I can't talk. So sometimes he just couldn't speak unless God opened his mouth. Uh, symbolic action. This one makes me think of Corey. If you've ever been in Corey's office, he has a lot of Legos. He likes to play with Legos. And Ezekiel and Corey would have been best buds. Because one time Ezekiel made a model of the city of Jerusalem. And then he made a bunch of little weapons with sticks and rocks and string and things. And then he sat down out in front of all the people where they could watch. And he destroyed the model of the city with his toy weapons. And it was like a five-year-old playing with his G.I. Joes, right? Builds a big thing up and then there's the guys blowing stuff up. Ezekiel did that. And he was trying to teach the people something about what was going to happen to Jerusalem. Then he had careful exposition and by that I mean he preached sermons sometimes he just got up and preached and it was very intelligent and very clear and very to the point and he spoke to very educated people and they understood what he was saying and they were challenged by it and convicted by it so sometimes he he preached good messages um, sixth he used inverted metaphor and basically what I mean is he took images that were used to describe Israel and he sort of flipped them on their head and so, for example, in the Bible, you see Israel described as a fruitful vine. 
a vine that's just growing and it's fruitful and it's blossoming and this is a positive thing. And Ezekiel turned around and said, you're not a fruitful vine, you're, you're just worthless wood that's not even good for a campfire. So he took images like that and he flipped them on their head. Um, allegory, you can read in Ezekiel 17, he told an interesting story about two eagles and it's not about eagles. It's about eagles, but it's really not about eagles. He's using an allegory to teach truth. Number eight, he uses graphic sexual imagery. Okay, now how many of you were here when we looked at Jeremiah? Okay, we looked at Jeremiah. Jeremiah says some stuff that you read it and you blush a little bit. Okay, you think, oh my goodness, I can't believe that's in the Bible. He just talked like that. I don't know that that's appropriate. Listen, when you get to Ezekiel 16, you just almost, you're just really embarrassed to read it. That's all I can say. You read it and you say, I can't, I can't believe he's talking about that. He's using this sort of imagery to describe the rebellion of the people. And you think chapter 16 is bad until you get to chapter 23. And you get to chapter 23, we're not going to read it. I Go home and read it. And it, he describes the rebellion of the people as adultery in such graphic language to get the point across to the people how evil and wicked and disgusting and perverse their idolatry is, that when you read it in those two chapters, I'm just telling you, if I stood up and said those things on a Sunday morning, you would never come back to this church again, ever. You would be reaching for the kid next to you to plug their ears and cover their ears up. You would be reaching for your grandma next to you, trying to cover her ears up, because you wouldn't want her to hear that stuff. I'm just telling you, it, the stuff he says in Ezekiel 23 is so graphic. Listen, it's beyond R-rated. It's X-rated. Serious. And he's trying to get the point across to the people. This is how bad your rebellion against God is. It's like a wife doing fill in the blank against her husband. And he fills in the blank. And it's just, it's very direct. Um, number nine, he's not allowed to mourn. His wife dies and God tells him don't cry about it. So he doesn't cry about it. If that was your pastor, you would think something was wrong with him. Or something was wrong with his wife, one of the two. So, interesting thing to put on your resume. And then lastly, detailed vision. This is kind of similar to the first one I mentioned, but he has a vision of the temple in Ezekiel 41 and 48 that is very, very specific and detailed. And so you add all that up, and here's what I have for Ezekiel's resume. Okay, You get it in the mail, you open it up, and you start reading through, and here's sort of what's going through your mind. Okay, some of these visions sounds like he's been taking drugs. So I think he's on acid, he's been smoking marijuana, he's nuts. He eats his sermons, literally, takes them and eats them. Sometimes he doesn't talk at all. He just looks at you and doesn't say anything. Sometimes all he'll do is play with toys and blow up things and pretend he's destroying a city. And then sometimes he opens his mouth and you wish he was mute again because the things that come out of his, mute, out of his mouth are so, so graphic. Uh, he does not mourn his wife when she dies. This guy is just really interesting when you read through the book. Okay? And in all of these things, God is trying to teach his people different lessons and different truths. And so let's talk, let's talk about Ezekiel 1. On your outline, I'll talk to you about the significance of it, but... Just look at Ezekiel 1. 
Okay? Ezekiel 1 is an apocalyptic vision. Apocalyptic literature is something that the Jews wrote a lot of. Okay? Some of it's in the Bible, some of it's not in the Bible. We have ancient books written by Jews that are not biblical books, and some of those books are apocalyptic in, in the things that they describe. And uh, the book of Daniel has some apocalyptic language in it. And when you get to the New Testament, the book of Revelation has a lot of apocalyptic language in it. Here's a great danger when you read apocalyptic literature. Okay? You, you hear somebody say, you need to take the Bible literally. You need to, to take it seriously. Be literal in your interpretation. Well, then you come to apocalyptic literature and you read the things that they're describing and you try to take it literally and you end up talking about really weird stuff. It's poetry. It's not meant to be taken literally, right? When Revelation describes different things that are going to happen at the end, sometimes you read books or you hear guys talk about the end times and you say, that just sounds weird. And it's because they're taking apocalyptic literature and they're trying to just be woodenly literal with what it says. And so you have to be careful about that here in Ezekiel 1. Look at verse 4. He talks about a storm. I look, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness all around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Okay, You read that and you say, wow, he saw this weird thing coming. right? And there's fire and there's metal sticking out of it and it's a storm. Listen, this means something in apocalyptic literature. Don't take it literally. Just understand that Ezekiel is saying God showed up. And if you want to think about this, think back to Mount Sinai. What happened when God showed up at Mount Sinai? A big cloud came down on the mountain and the mountain shook and there was a storm and there was lightning and the people were terrified and it was kind of scary. And Ezekiel is saying God is here in this vision. He's talking about the presence of of God, or you could call that, if you want to use a technical term, a theophany, a physical manifestation of the presence of God, okay? Just like Mount Sinai. He talks about four living creatures. Look at Ezekiel 1, 5 to 10. From the midst of it came the likeness of four creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. You say, that's not very human. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of a sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. And under their wings on the four sides they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. You read that and you think, that's just really weird. Are there creatures like that up in heaven that we're going to see someday? Well, probably what he's doing is he's using apocalyptic language to say all of creation was present before God. The storm comes, God is present, and here's these creatures, and he describes them, and what he's saying is all of creation is before the creator. Humans, animals, beasts, birds, lions, ox, all of creation is here. Okay, so he's talking about all that God has made. Verse 12, we just read it. He says, they went straight and they did not pivot. In apocalyptic language, that's a descriptor or a way of talking about omnipresence, that, that God is everywhere. 
Okay? And he talks later about wheels of eyes. You can read that. It's, it's the most bizarre thing to read. And what he's talking about is not a wheel literally with eyes all around it. But he's talking about God seeing everything. God knowing everything. He's everywhere. Right? The cloud is coming, yes, and, and his presence is here. But he's not just here, he's everywhere. And he sees everything. And all of creation is before him. And he talks in verse 22 to 28 about a dome and a throne, and there's a figure on the throne, and he's talking about God sitting on the throne of heaven. So you can read the vision and just understand that you don't need to take it woodenly, strictly literal. It's apocalyptic language. He's, he's experiencing the presence of God. And here's the significance of everything you read in chapter 1, okay? He's reminding his readers, number one, of the unchanging grandeur of God. The greatness of God, the bigness of God, the power of God. You say, why is that important? It's important because he just got taken into exile, right? The Babylonians and their gods just came and whipped Judah and seemingly their God. And they hauled them out to exile and then a few years later they flattened the temple. And the second thing he's, he's reminding them is that God's not confined to the temple in Jerusalem. God is big, and he, he's not homeless now that they've flattened the temple. The temple wasn't his real home to begin with. Heaven is his throne, right? He's enthroned in this dome with the, the, the gleaming metal and the lights and the cloud and the storm. And what he's saying to the people is, just relax. Your God is not some local shrine deity where if you tear his temple down, he no longer has any power. Your God is the God of heaven, the God who made all creatures. And yes, he, he manifested his presence in this temple, but just because they tore this temple down doesn't mean that he's powerless now. He's big and he's powerful and he's still sitting on the throne of heaven and he's still sovereign over all of creation. All of creation is still before him. And none of that has changed just because we got sent into exile and God's temple got torn down. Does that make sense? He's reminding God's people of these important lessons. Look at Ezekiel 8. He's also reminding the people of why they got sent into exile in the first place. Ezekiel 8. We're just going to read it. The whole chapter. It's not very long. Ezekiel 8, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal, right? Same images, over and over. Brightness, gleaming metal, okay? When you read that, you say, does that mean that this... This creature, whoever he's describing, that this God has metal legs? No, he's just describing the, the glory of it, the amazing nature of it. He put out the form of a hand and he took me by a lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where there was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there. Like the vision I saw in the valley. That's chapter 1. right? God's presence is here in this vision. 
Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall. And behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go and see the vile abominations that they're committing here. So I went in and saw. And there, engraved on the wall all around. Now, remember, he just dug his way into the temple. That's what he's telling you. Went to the courtyard. There was a hole. God told him to dig. He dug through. He's in the temple. Okay? Engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each room, uh, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will, still, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. He brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, have you seen this, son of man? You'll see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner house, inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, and that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they will put the branch in their nose, therefore I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. Though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Okay? When he talks about this image of jealousy, he's talking about Asherah. Okay? Asherah was a deity that the Canaanites worshipped in the hills. They would build these Asherah poles, totem poles, little statues at the top of hills. And they believed that Asherah was sort of a, a combination of agricultural, help your crops grow, and fertility goddess. And eventually, you can just jot down... If you want to, out to the side, 2 Kings 21.7, Manasseh took an Asherah statue and put it in the temple. Inside God's temple, he sets up a, a, a pole or a statue to Asherah. In verse 7 to 12, he talks about uh, these animals, right? these abominations. That was not part of God's instruction for how to build the temple. What that is, is probably Egyptian gods and goddesses who usually had a strong correlation to an animal. And on the walls of God's temple, they've gone in and they've painted these animals to worship them and to worship these Egyptian gods. It talks about Tammuz, women weeping for Tammuz in verse 14. That was a Mesopotamian fertility cult. They worshiped Tammuz so that their cattle would have uh, calves or their lambs would have ewes or whatever, that they would children would be born in their family. It's a fertility cult. And then, the, maybe the worst one, chapter 8, verse 16 to 17, talks about these men, 
worshiping the sun in the east. And the way the temple was built for them to worship the sun in the east, and they're bowing down to the sun, literally what Ezekiel is saying is, their butt is facing God in the temple. They're worshiping the sun, and in doing so, literally sticking their backside to the Lord. And he puts this chapter early on in the book to say, I've reminded you that God is still God even though you've gone into exile and even though the temple got torn down, chapter 1. But now let me remind you why you got sent into exile. This kind of stuff. In the house of the Lord, you're worshiping all these different idols. And again, if you want to know how God feels about chapter 8, chapter 8 says here's some of the problems. You say, well, how did God feel about that? You go back and you read the graphic sexual imagery in chapter 16 and 23, and you put your place in the position of the spouse who's been abandoned, who's been cheated on, and you read what he says in those chapters, and you say, that's how God feels about it. When Israel worships these gods, chapter 8, that's how God feels about it. That's the equivalent of what they've done. Ezekiel's job is to be a watchman. Okay, He's a watchman. You can look in chapter 2. This is all early on in the book. In chapter 2, God warns him. And he says, The people that I'm sending you to are obstinate, and they're stiff-necked, and they're hard-hearted, and they're wicked, and they're vicious. He just warns him up front. Right? This is sort of like Isaiah. Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, and he says, Woe is me. And the angel comes and, and cleanses his his tongue because he says I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips and then God says who will go for us who will speak for us and Isaiah says I'm in I'll speak and then God says great no one's going to listen and God says the same thing to Ezekiel you're going to speak for me when I don't want you to speak I'm going to close your mouth and you literally will not be able to speak but then I'll open your mouth and he warns him chapter 2 the people are wicked he tells him that this is his duty. And what he says in chapter 3, in a nutshell, is this. Ezekiel, it's your job to warn them, to be the watchman. You go tell them to repent. If you tell them to repent and they don't, their blood is on their own head. But Ezekiel, this is how serious I'm taking your job. If you don't go tell those people to repent, their blood is on your head. This is your job, and you need to take it seriously. If you don't warn those people about the danger to come, their blood is on your head. And there's lots of debate about what does that mean, that their blood is on his head? Let's just say it's not good. Is that fair? You don't want their blood on your head. And let's just be honest enough to say that that in some way, shape, or form has to apply to us today as believers given the great commission by Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations. I'm sending you into all the world to tell everybody everywhere the good news. Your job is to be a watchman. That's your duty. All believers, go, make disciples, do it. If you don't, in some very real sense, their blood is on your head. If you ignore that, if you think it's no big deal, if you say, oh, I'm not interested in that, in some sense you bear responsibility uh, for that. So he warns him, he tells him it's his duty, and then he tells him uh, his message. And this is where he eats the scroll. 
And God is saying to him, in effect, write the words down I give you and then eat it. And it's a picture for Ezekiel and for the people to say, Ezekiel is not just telling you what Ezekiel thinks. Ezekiel is telling you what God thinks. He's eating the scroll from God. It's now literally in him. And what is going to come out of him is not his words, but it's God's word. And then it talks about uh, the dumbness which we've mentioned. Sometimes I'm just not going to let you talk. And when I'm ready for you to talk, I will let you talk. Now, you take all that in, okay? God sends them into exile. Ezekiel goes. They tear the temple down because of all these abominations we read about in chapter 8. And you think about all the horror we saw in Jeremiah and Lamentations about the exile. And you say, this is just kind of a bummer. This is just not pleasant. It's very negative. It talks about judgment and the warnings. And Ezekiel goes and he just sort of lays the law down. And you're talking about blood being on people's heads. It's just sort of heavy, negative, almost depressing stuff to read about. But you've got to see that in Ezekiel there's really really great hope and this is what we'll we'll end with Ezekiel 36 and 37 the hope of redemption in Ezekiel and we're not going to read these you go back tonight and you read Ezekiel 36 and 37 Uh, Ezekiel 36 talks about a new covenant and God sending his spirit to give his people a new heart and then Ezekiel 37 is a vision the vision of the valley of dry bones And it plays right in with what you just read in Ezekiel 36. Um, Here's the reason you ought to have hope as you think about redemption and the good news that Ezekiel is bringing to the people. Okay, Number one, God promises to vindicate his holy name. That's what he's saying in these chapters. And basically God is saying to Ezekiel, by me bringing Babylon here to punish you, I have made myself look bad. It does look like the gods of Babylon are more powerful than me. It does look like the nation of Babylon is more favored than Israel, than Judah, my people. And he's saying to Ezekiel, one day I'm going to set that right. And I'm going to clear the record. I'm going to hold Babylon guilty for what they've done. I am going to vindicate my name. Uh, Number two, he promises that the nations will know him. And this is, to be honest with you, this is really new at this point in the Old Testament. Because up to this point, it's been Israel, 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 Israel. Israel is supposed to be a light for the nations, but the nations are supposed to come to Israel. And now God says, I'm going to bring the nations, all the nations, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, all of them. I'm going to bring them into this deal. So he says the nations are going to know him. Number three, he says he's going to gather the people back. I'm going to bring you back. And this goes back to the history of Israel. After the exile comes the return. God's saying, I'm going to bring you back here. I'll gather you back to the land. Number four, he says he's going to forgive the people. Talks about him cleansing the people. Which, when you've read chapter 8, and you've read how God feels about chapter 8 in chapter 16 and 23, it's remarkable that he would forgive them. That the spouse who's been rejected in the ways described in this book would then turn and forgive his spouse and bring them back and restore that relationship. But that's what he says he's going to do. He promises that he's going to move them to obedience, which is really good news. 
this is maybe the best part of chapter 36 and 37. Because up to this point, God has given his people laws and they have been totally unable to obey him. Right? God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the people are doing what at the foot of Mount Sinai? Breaking the Ten Commandments. Right? Joshua, just a little bit later, he leads the people in. They fight all these battles. They win at Jericho. They eventually win at Ai. They go north. They go south. They have all these victories. And Joshua stands up for one last sermon. You can read it at the end of Joshua. He says the famous line, right? Choose this day who you're going to serve. Don't go back and forth. Pick who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, what's he say? We're going to serve the Lord. This is what we're going to do. And he says to the people, what are you going to do? And the people are all pumped up because he is a good preacher. And they were all excited. And they all raised, every head bowed and eye closed. They raised their hand and they said, yes, we're in. That's what we're going to do. We're with you, Joshua. And you know what Joshua says next? No, you're not. You can't do it. What a downer. Can you imagine that at a Billy Graham revival crusade? Right? If you want to get saved, come on down. If you want to follow Jesus, come on down. You get all these people down here. You excited to follow Jesus? Yes. You're going to give your life to Jesus? Yes. No, you're not. You're a bunch of losers. Go home. That's what Joshua did. You've got the law. You can't do it. Solomon says the same thing. He finds himself as the king. Right? He's seen Saul blow it. He's seen his dad, David, blow it. He becomes the king, and before he blows it, he has enough wisdom in his own mind when he's praying at the dedication of the temple to say, look, there's no one who doesn't break your law. We're guilty, all of us. We all do it. Jeremiah says the same thing to the people. He says, your hearts are sick. They are so sick. And so wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9, it is beyond comprehension how twisted your heart is. To your core, you're corrupted. Right? On and on and on. I'll give you all sorts of examples. And now God says, this is such good, such good news. He says, not only am I just going to give you my law on the tablets, I'm going to write it on the new heart that I give you, and I'm going to move you to obey. I'm going to help you to obey. I'm going to help you to be faithful and keep my law. If you want the New Testament equivalent, this is Paul in Philippians telling the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what God's promising in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to move you so that you want to do the right thing. And you actually do it. And Paul says to the Philippians, God is doing that now. He's working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's moving you to obedience, okay? Number six, God says he's going to dwell with his people, which again is amazing when you read the rebellion of the folks and the way God describes it. God says, I'm going to come back and we're going to live together, you and me. We're going to be together. We're going to dwell side by side. After all you've done, this is good hope. This is good news. And then lastly... Maybe most importantly, God says through Ezekiel that he is going to send his servant, David. And he does not mean that David's going to rise up out of the grave and come back to life and sit back on his throne. What he's saying is somebody from David's line is going to come. 
And who was that? Jesus. Okay? So you got that list, right? Hope of redemption in Ezekiel. And I, I, as we went, I tried to talk to you about what did that mean for Ezekiel when he heard it and the situation they were in. Go back and look at that list and think about Jesus with me, right? God says he's going to vindicate his name. In the New Testament, we read that when Jesus died on the cross, it was the ultimate vindication of God's name, Romans 3, because in former days, he had passed over sin that he should have punished. And when Jesus died at the cross, it was proof, it was vindication that God really was a good judge because he punished all that sin he overlooked in the Old Testament and he punished it in Jesus. He vindicates his name. Talks about the nations will know him, right? What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations, just like God promised in Ezekiel. Talks about gathering his people. What did Jesus say in the Gospel of John? When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I will gather people to me. What does he say in John chapter 6? I will draw people to the Father, and no one can come to the Father unless I draw them. I'm gathering them back. Talks about forgiveness. You could quote, write down, reference any number of verses about forgiveness. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. The two words used in Ezekiel 36. Forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness because of what Jesus has done. Talks about obeying. And we've certainly seen that in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus calls his people to obey, to be disciples. Jesus elsewhere says, you are my friends if you do what I tell you to do. I want you to obey me. Talks about dwelling with his people. That's the sixth one there. What does Jesus say the night before he's going to be crucified? I'm going away, but I'm never going to leave you. How does that work? Well, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, my spirit, to live in you, to dwell with you. And I will be with you until the end of the age. Again, point you to Jesus. And then ultimately, this promise for David. And you see Jesus walking around all these towns and over and over and over again, you hear these blind guys and these crippled guys and these sick people saying, you're the son of David. You're the son of David. It's not just that they spent the last hour on Ancestry.com. It's that they're saying, you're the one. You're the one Ezekiel talked about. You're the one that he promised. So Jesus fulfills all these things. Now, one last thing. Thinking about this perfect place. Remember, utopia. Perfect place. A good place. Does it exist or is it no place? Okay, Think with me about what we know in the book of Revelation in describing the new heavens and the new earth. And think about this list, seven things. Hope of redemption in Ezekiel 36 and 37. Okay, And you forget the references in Ezekiel for a second and you think about the book of Revelation. God's going to vindicate his holy name. The book of Revelation says that that's going to happen in the end two ways. God's going to vindicate his name in judging those who dwell on the earth. That's the phrase in Revelation. Unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth. And by saving his people. He's going to prove that he is a good judge in judging his enemies. And he's going to prove that he really is the savior of these people who have looked so pitiful all through the centuries by saving them and delivering them. He's going to vindicate his name. It says he's going to promise that the nations will know him. What does Revelation, I believe it's 4 and 7, say? It says there's a multitude before the throne, people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every people group. 
standing before the throne praising Jesus. That happens. Talks about gathering his people, forgiving his people, his people obeying. You see that throughout Revelation in the promises and the things that John describes. You see this, this idea number six that God is going to dwell with his people. And God says that explicitly in Revelation 21 when he talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And he says, there's not going to be a temple in the new Jerusalem. We don't need a new temple because Jesus is there. He's with him. He's dwelling with him. He's walking with him. We don't need the temple. And he talks about the king. God promises to send his servant David. You can read in Revelation 19. It talks about Jesus on his horse going out into battle. And on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Right? The son of David, the one who's going to sit on the throne forever. Ultimately, what Ezekiel is saying or promising and that we see fulfilled in Revelation is that there is a good place. And we experience some of these things now because Jesus has come, right? His kingdom has been inaugurated, but it hasn't been fully ushered in. And you see in Revelation, when all of these things come to a head, Jesus returns and he's with his people in a new heaven, in a new earth. That's the good place. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're hoping for. And let's be honest, okay? Compared to a lot of places in the world, we live in a good place. Okay? We're blessed in that way. We're also cursed in that way. Do you understand that? Because it's so easy for us in the United States, in Texas, West Texas, to say, man, we live in a pretty good place. And we're pretty comfortable here. We don't have a lot of worries or a lot of fears here. And it's easy for us to just sort of slip back into thinking that maybe this is the good place. Maybe this is the perfect place. Maybe this is the place where, where we sort of work and labor and we just pull our hair out because we want it to be perfect. And compared to other places in the world, it's pretty darn good. And maybe we get comfortable here. And Ezekiel is saying, look, no matter how comfortable you get here, doesn't matter if you're in Babylon or Judah or Israel or Assyria or any of these other kingdoms to come, the good place is coming down the road. That's what you're hoping for. That's what you're longing for. And you know as well as I do that even when we get comfortable in this good place here, every now and then you have something that sort of shocks you back to reality. And you remember, oh, it may be pretty good here, but it's not perfect here. You go to a funeral of a 12-year-old boy and you say, man, this is not the good place. You lose a spouse and you say, oh my goodness. This is not the good place. Somebody gets sick. The economy goes down. Whatever happens, it could be a big thing, a small thing. But every now and then we face something that reminds us, this is not utopia here. But it is coming. It's certain because Jesus has come. He's ushered in his kingdom and one day we're going to experience it in all its fullness and all its glory. That's the good place. So let's pray in anticipation of that place. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Ezekiel. The man, we thank you for his ministry. We thank you for the book that he wrote. And Father, as I've studied this book and as these people go and read this book and think about it, we're confronted with things in this book that are very blunt, 
and direct and very graphic. And we pray that you would forgive us when sometimes we think about our relationship with you or our sin before you is not that big a deal. And we're reminded here exactly about how you feel of our sin. We're reminded about the punishments and the discipline that you've brought on your people in ages past because of their sin. And ultimately, we look back to the cross and we see Jesus, our King, crucified for our sin and we see more clearly than anywhere else the hatred that you have for sin and the seriousness that you feel towards our sin, the, the gravity that our sin holds in, in your sight. Father, forgive us when we get comfortable where we're at, when we begin to think that this is the good place, the perfect place, the utopia. Father, strengthen us when we find ourselves in the valley and we know all too well that this isn't the good place. And we long for it and we yearn for it and we are there's just something in us that feels incomplete until Jesus comes back and restores and cleanses and fixes and recreates what we have messed up. Thank you for the hope that you give us in Ezekiel, hope of life, hope of resurrection, hope of fellowship with you and living with you. Father, our hope is not in this world, but our hope is in the place that Jesus is preparing for us even now. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its relevance and its application to our lives and uh, we pray that you would be with us as we continue to to truck through these old testament books and to think about how they might apply to our lives today give us wisdom give us soft hearts to hear your word and to respond in a way that would honor you like the people we pray that you would move us to obey we know that left to ourselves we are incapable of lasting genuine obedience and so we pray that you would do a work in us and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.